What overlooked fact from a movie will completely change the way I see it? In Return of the Jedi, it's implied that the Ewoks feast on human flesh when they were going to cook the gang on spits. At the end of the movie, there's certainly more than enough stormtrooper fillets to go around. Saving Private Ryan. In the beginning, when they're clearing out the trenches and bunkers after taking the beach, two German soldiers come out with their hands up and yelling, seemingly trying to surrender. They're both shot dead, and the American soldier says they were saying, Look, I washed for supper. It was actually in Czech, not German. And the man was saying, Please, don't shoot me. I'm not German. I'm Czech. I didn't kill anyone. I'm Czech. He was a Czech taken prisoner by the Germans and forced to fight for them. It made me sad when I learn that one. All the traps and goonies are designed so that one person can make it through alive, especially if he or she is taken hostage and forced through the tunnels. The ship is rigged to be able to be sailed by a crew of one, so the one person who makes it through the traps can sail away with the treasure for themselves. In the Dark Knight, the Joker tells Two-Face how he sees social order as the death of one being a tragedy only if the person is special enough. But people that are expected to die don't get attention from others. He refers to this as being part of the plan and established order. In real life, Heath Ledger died before The Dark Knight came out, and everyone talked about it. However, what a lot of people don't know is that Conway Wycliffe, a stuntman who worked on the movie, died as well when a stunt went wrong. The movie is dedicated to both men, but I don't need to tell you which one got more press. In Inglorious Bastards, the burning of the cinema at the end parallels the actual church burning by the Nazis at Orador sur Glane. In fact, most of the movie sees us compelled to cheer on our protagonists as they commit war crimes and atrocities, and we feel permitted to enjoy this because they're morally superior and justified in their actions, given our knowledge of the vileness of their enemy and what they've inflicted upon our heroes. Yet, in reality, this is exactly the pervasive mentality the Nazis used to justify atrocities against the Jews and other minorities. A lot of people watch the iconic scene in Singing in the Rain and assume the cop and pedestrians react the way they do because it's simply weird to sing and dance in the rain. However, the previous scene sets the time at around 2am, so it makes more sense thinking they probably see him as a ridiculous drunkard who's finally going home after a night of binging. Shaun of the Dead. Spoilers ahead. The entire plot is revealed at the start of the movie. We'll have a Bloody Mary, first thing. Mary gets impaled and dies. A bite at the king's head. Philip is bitten. A couple, David and Di, at the little princess, Liz. A stagger, when they pretend to be zombies. Down by the bar for shots, killing zombies. Talk about great filmmaking. The entire plot of Home Alone is set into motion when Kevin gets into a fight with his family over spilled milk. Fight Club. When Tyler Durden calls the narrator back in the phone booth, the camera slowly tracks towards the phone. On the left of the phone, a notice can be seen saying, no incoming calls allowed. When Tyler and the narrator are on the bus, the long-haired guy pushes past Tyler without a word, then says, excuse me, as he pushes past the narrator. When Tyler and the narrator hit the first car with baseball bats, Tyler hits first, but the alarm is triggered only after the narrator hits. There are so many littered throughout the movie. In Pinocchio, there's a group of men kidnapping boys and somehow magically turning them into donkeys. And absolutely nothing is done to stop this. And it's not like the consequences of it go away. Pinocchio keeps the donkey ears in tail for the duration of the movie. The movie just ends and everyone forgets that this is still happening. Kind of a dark ending there, Disney. 
In the fifth element, the bad guy, Zorg, and the hero, Corbin Dallas, never actually meet or even really know about each other. In fact, Corbin works for and is fired by Zorg via the cab company. The closest they get to each other is getting into slash out of elevators on the cruise ship just before it blows up. In the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, not many people understand why Hal went crazy and murdered the crew of the Discovery, or anything that happened after that. Hal was programmed to relay information 100% accurately and completely, but the government types ordered Hal to keep the actual objective of their deep space mission secret, the mission to investigate the signal sent from the monolith on the moon to Jupiter orbit, all for petty political reasons. Hal took these conflicting orders and came to the only conclusion a computer could come to to eliminate the conflict. He first decides to try to halt communication with Earth. He triggers a fault in the relay antenna so the crew would need to take it offline. When he realizes that the crew is considering taking him offline for his odd behavior, he panics. The best solution now seems obvious. Eliminate the humans and he won't have to conceal the details of the mission. Conflict averted. His logic is cold to a fault. Of course, Dave Bowman survives and is able to deactivate Hal. What happens next is sort of glossed over in the movie. David spends months in space alone, with zero communication with anyone, farther away from any other human being than anyone has ever been. He goes into a sort of autopilot mode. He does his daily duties and those of Frank, his dead co-pilot. He runs the huge ship with flawless efficiency. He practically becomes a machine himself, nothing but the mission. After the remainder of his flight, he arrives at the monolith orbiting Jupiter. He flies a pod to the surface of it to study it, and realizes that there is no surface. It's a gateway. He enters the gate, and this is where the weird eyeball trippy effects heavy breathing takes place, and flies through a wormhole, a stargate, to a very far away star in a distant galaxy. On his way, he passes over some alien landscapes and some other weird spaceships. When he arrives, he lives out the rest of his human life. He spends like 30 plus years in that weird empty room, getting older in complete isolation. When he finally dies of old age, the aliens who created the monoliths, who placed one on Earth in prehistoric times and used it to teach hominids how to use tools, who buried one on the moon with an alarm that when it would be discovered would point the way to the Stargate, who created that room for David to live in, and where they fed him and studied him, gathered his consciousness and turned him into one of them, a being of energy and knowledge. He took the form of a floating baby and decided to revisit humanity. The whole film is a speculation on evolution of humanity, from the origin of man to the final result, from a creature who discovers tools to save their race, to a creature who relies on tools and machines to expand their horizons, to a creature who's nearly destroyed by those machines, to becoming something of a living machine, the best of both worlds, to a creature who is enlightened past such petty things as using machines to kill each other. Ariel from The Little Mermaid can write in English. We know this because she signed her name quite beautifully on a contract after she read it. So why didn't she attempt to communicate via written word with Eric? Instead of just writing in the sand, she immediately resorts to clumsy charades. In the 1990 version of Total Recall, the character Quaid, played by Schwarzenegger, gets a dream implant and either gets the girl and saves the planet by making Mars's sky blue, or he has a psychotic episode from an implant that went off course and is lobotomized. The movie was apparently designed to be specifically unclear which, so the viewer is compelled to see the movie multiple times. 
The tech who sets up the implant prior to a possible psychotic episode caused by the procedure says of the implant, that's a new one, blue sky on Mars. District 9 is not in fact about apartheid. In Neil Blomkamp's short, Alive in Yoburg, on which D9 is based, there were similar interviews to those at the beginning of District 9. The difference is that all of those interviews were real. The filmmakers simply asked residents of Johannesburg what they thought of immigrants from Zimbabwe, and they received the remarkably hostile responses. The film isn't just a parallel to apartheid, but more about the current sentiment towards immigrants right now. In Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ferris's constant complaint and his justification for many of his shenanigans is that his parents won't buy him a car. Toward the end of the movie, when Ferris's mom is driving his sister home from picking her up at the police station, there's a quick throwaway where mom complains that all this mess screwed up the deal she was working on, and that the money from the deal was supposed to be used to buy Ferris a car. Ferris ended up screwing himself out of the car he so desperately wanted. In Independence Day, one often mocked scene in the movie is when Jeff Goldblum uses a regular old MacBook to hack into the alien ship and disable with a virus. The obvious question is, how did they do this? It's simple. They cut a scene out, who knows why, where it was all explained that all of our modern technology, computers, microchips, everything, was all reverse engineered from the crashed fighter. Hence, why Goldblum was able to hack into the alien ship. He knew the code already. Once you know this fact, those entire scenes make sense. This scene was shot and it was added to later versions of the movie, including the DVD release. But the original theatrical release and the VHS release did not have them. The main plot of The Matrix was supposed to use human brains as processors for machines, not power sources. That's why Neo could do all those things. He could interact with the code more fully. In Lilo and Stitch, Lilo looks after a fish named Pudge who she claims controls the weather. Lilo's parents died in a car accident due to bad weather. For me, it explains a lot of Lilo's behavior. In Pan's Labyrinth, it's real. It's not just a little girl's fantasy. She's actually a princess and everything that happens is real. Almost everything in the story can be explained by coincidence or imagination. Except for one thing. At the end, the guard guarding her room is told to kill her if she leaves. That is the only exit and the windows are too high and barred. So the only way she could get out is if the chalk actually worked. This was confirmed by Guillermo del Toro. The chestbuster scene in the first Alien movie was almost completely ad-libbed. Scott wanted to get as natural a reaction as possible from the actors, so he didn't clue them in as to what was to happen. They were told something shocking was to happen in the scene, but not exactly what. The reactions you see as the blood sprays over everything are as real as they can get. The genie completely scammed Aladdin. Aladdin asked the genie to make me a prince. He then goes on to suffer for lying about being a prince and learns a valuable lesson about being truthful in himself. He asked to be a prince, not to look like one, not to have everything a prince has, to be an actual prince. He should have land and titles and a bloodline now. When Jafar wishes to become sultan, he becomes the sultan. The previous one is stripped of his land, even his clothes. Why didn't this happen? happened for Aladdin when he made the exact same wish. In Pulp Fiction, when Butch had to go back to his house to get his watch, the reason Vincent didn't react to Butch making Pop-Tarts and just making general noise is because he thought Butch was Marcellus Wallace. Vincent thought Marcellus was back from getting food, which is why you see Butch randomly running into Marcellus. He's holding a box of food and coffee. 
Jack Nicholson's character from The Shining was originally to be played by Robin Williams, but Kubik thought he was too crazy for the role. Let me say that again. Robin Williams was too crazy, so the alternative was Jack freaking Nicholson. In The Big Lebowski, Donnie is the physical manifestation of the movie's theme. If you think about it, nobody knows anything throughout the entire film. Bunny and the Nihilists think there's actual money out there. Mr. Lebowski thinks Bunny's actually been kidnapped. And obviously, the dude and Walter have no idea what's happening. You can see this in Donnie's character in a few ways. First, he's constantly told to shut up because he's out of his element and acting like a child that wanders into the middle of a movie and wants to know what's happening. Second, his character has absolutely no influence on the film's plot, which is unheard of when it comes to a character with that much screen time. And last, Lastly, after everyone in the film finally figures out what's happening and ignorance is vanquished, Donnie dies. 300 is told by a Spartan, the soldier Leonidas sent away before the final battle, as a story to motivate other Spartans right before they charge at the ending credits which is the real-life Battle of Pladia, where a united Greek force decimated the Persian army. This is why the film contains so many fantastical elements, such as bombs, elephants, giant monsters, why the immortals had fangs, and things like that. The whole story is just propaganda told to soldiers to make the Spartans seem super-powered in the Persians' evil monsters. The implication is that much of it is exaggerated for dramatic effect, so the soldiers would fight harder. Moulin Rouge. Satine dies from tuberculosis, which is a contagious disease. She very likely gave it to Christian. He'll probably die from it, while the Duke was spared from that. In addition, the livelihood of the Moulin Rouge was dependent upon the Duke's money. The scenes with Christian writing his novel are set against the backdrop of an abandoned and destroyed Moulin Rouge. Satine's choice to do things for love literally destroyed the lives of everyone she cared about. In Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan seemed furious that Forrest was awarded a Medal of Honor. However, as Lieutenant Dan was his first officer in his chain of command, he would have had to be the one that originally suggested it. Superman Returns The boyfriend, Richard, played by James Marsden, is all around a very great fellow. He's a pilot, loving father figure, and all around a Superman. Superman, on the other hand, leaves Lois because, best explanation, he felt like it. He comes back years later and expects her to continue where they last left off, as if years haven't gone by. She hasn't found someone else, has a kid, and that he left her to go have a vacation in space. Of course, ultimately, despite it all, she chooses Superman, because no matter how great of a person you are, you don't compare to Superman. Some salt on the wound is the revelation that it was Superman's kid, the kid he left behind and left Lois to take care of on her own. Oh yeah, he also saves Superman's life, and Superman's like, thanks loser, I'ma still take your family away. What a jerk. The film Watchmen depicts how many different world events would have been with superheroes present, especially Dr. Manhattan. For example, the Vietnam War is won by the US in a week with Dr. Manhattan's help, and the famous photo of a sailor kissing a nurse when World War II ends becomes a picture of a female superhero kissing that same nurse. There are 10 million changes, many of them extremely significant, that all occur in world history because of the addition of superheroes. So at the beginning of the movie, there's a montage of superhero history 
story with a scene of the night owl punching out a thug outside the stage door of a movie theater. But guess what? The signs in the background show the production in question to be D. Flirtima, the bat. The venue is Gotham Opera House, and the couple emerging from the theater in the left side of the frame are presumably Martha and Thomas Wayne. They even threw in a Batman poster just to really drive the hint home. In the Watchmen universe, Bruce Wayne never becomes Batman because his parents aren't killed. In the 8th Harry Potter movie, during the scene when Harry and McGonagall confront Snape in the Great Hall, as Snape is escaping, he redirects one of McGonagall's spells to hit the Carrow twins who are standing behind him. He's trying to help Harry, while still not revealing his cover to Voldemort. The Land Before Time Notice at the end, Littlefoot finds the Great Valley after running through a dark tunnel with a light at the end. He then finds this paradise, complete with his long-lost grandparents. He's dead. They all died, and they're in heaven together. This was originally planned to be explicitly stated, but then it was decided to be too dark an ending for children, so they made it symbolic instead. Forrest Gump when Jenny tells him he has a son. Throughout the whole movie, the viewer assumes that Forrest gets by relatively alright because he's mentally handicapped. No matter how tragic it gets, there's this little comfort one can take in understanding that he never fully appreciates how awful things can be at times. He's too simple to feel the tragedy he suffers when his life goes wrong. But when Jenny tells him he's a father, what's the first question he asks? Is he like me? And then it hits you that he understood all along. Every time Forrest's mistakes hurt himself and those around him. Every time he was too dumb for his own good. He understood that he had made himself and all the people around him suffer at times. Even though he always tried to do the right thing, far from simple, he understood how much suffering was caused by his handicap, and only admitted to it in when he found out his son might have to carry the same burden. Starship Troopers is thought of as a mindless action movie, but there's a subtle subplot throughout the whole movie. The reason Earth goes to war is because of the meteorites sent there by the bugs on Clendithu, but it's hinted at in the movie that the odds of that actually happening are almost impossible. That would mean that the meteorites were just a natural phenomenon that the government used as an excuse to attack the alien planet, which means the protagonists were not protecting Earth, but rather invading an innocent planet. Terminator. Kyle fell in love with a photo of Sarah Connor that he had in the future. A photo that's taken at the end of the film at the very moment she's thinking about how much she loves Kyle. The philosophy of the Jedi Order is a lie. They preach balance, but the entire focus of their existence is not establishing balance and peace between the light and the dark sides of the Force, but rather focusing on wiping one out while preventing themselves from being wiped out in the process. This is one of the reasons why an individual Sith appears to be so much more powerful than an individual Jedi. It's not that the dark side is inherently more powerful, it's that the force of the cosmos is trying to even the odds. This seriously changed my view on the entire Star Wars universe. Jareth is not in love with Sarah in the labyrinth. Sarah is a teenager who's on the cusp of growing up. She feels lost because her father is remarried and they have a new baby together. She feels forgotten and ignored and taken advantage of, and resents her baby brother for stealing her father's love. She's also on the cusp of womanhood and wants attention from men, but is also so afraid of that attention. She has no idea what love is, so she makes her wish and the Goblin King takes her baby brother away, and Sarah gets to act out her fantasy where a powerful magical king is in love with her, a special flower, and will whisk her away from her boring life. Only she has no idea what love actually looks like. 
You can't dream something you've never experienced. Jareth acts as he's expected to act, because Sarah's the one controlling everything, since this is, after all, her fantasy. In the end, she realizes that she has no idea what being in love and being responsible are like, so she chooses to wake up and be a better big sister to her baby brother and stop being such a brat. It's a movie about growing up, not about love. In How to Train Your Dragon, Hiccup's acceptance as a Viking is dependent upon his ability to kill a dragon. After meeting Toothless, he decides that isn't really what he wants, and that dragons aren't actually evil. But then at the end of the movie, he kills a dragon, and is no longer ostracized by the rest of the Vikings. So, not as much changed as you think it did. When you subscribe, make sure to hit the bell to turn on notifications. Put the playlist on in the background to finish listening to all the stories linked at the top of the description. And if you like Am I the Genius, give Am I the Jerk a shot, linked in the description as well. Either way, thanks a lot for watching, and we'll see you guys next time.